the time has come. It has come and it came really fast. You know, it, it doesn't even feel like three years, but it's been three years. It's been a whole three years, man. And it's so poetic too, because we, we just talked about Armenia and Azerbaijan on the anniversary of the podcast. And the first thing we talked about in the podcast was Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's, it all just comes together. So now I just have to grab all my notes. I'm, I'm organized, but not apparently not organized enough. That's the problem I have right now. But yes, 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 yes. <sighs> We've made it. We've made it. It's time for the third anniversary special. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And what do I have for you? What do I have for you for the big three? The big three. I have a chat. But not just the chat. I'm going to be laying out some ideas like I usually do with my anniversary episodes. So I think, I think I bring a lot to the table in terms of ideas. I won't overstate my value here. I'm just one guy. But I know for a fact people aren't saying what I'm saying. So that makes me special. (laughs) But yeah, so I'll just get into it. Over the last year, I decided that I wanted to try and sort of articulate my political and geopolitical ideas as I, and and on top of that, put them into writing. And so that's what I did whenever I had spare time. And I ended up writing basically a series of papers covering different things relating to America, politics and geopolitics. I've, I've, I've amassed a great deal of geopolitical uh, papers, so to speak, and which I feel like my uh, like my other anniversary episode topics, I think this will be rather relevant as we move forward in time. Not just talking about problems and issues here and there, but laying out a real vision. Because I, I don't like just complaining about things. I like solutions. I like visions. And I think that this is a very, very appealing vision. So... I'll be talking about a concept that I've come up with over the last year. Because last year we talked about civilization states and what America's role in this age of civilizations should be. And as I thought about it over the last year, I thought, what if we went even further? Because last year I said, we should be the great trading nation. But then I thought, well, what comes after? What comes after the great trading nation? I mean, we're over here. We're Western but Western civilization is a term used inaccurately, and I'll cover that. At some point, the distances, the geography, the demographics involved are going to turn America into a completely different animal from the rest of the West. And at that point, what are we? I think that we, like Russia, will evolve from being just a nation state. We'll, we'll still be Western, just like Russia is. The people like to pretend that they're not, but they are. But I have come up with the concept of America as a civilization. And so that's what we'll be talking about. America as a civilization. 
and the ambitions we ought to have in pursuing America's evolution towards not nationhood, but civilizationhood. That's what we will be discussing on this special edition for the third anniversary of the podcast. So stay tuned. I think you'll be very intrigued by what will be said from this point onwards. But before we continue, thank you for sticking with me and listening to me rant and ramble for three years, baby. Three years. Yes. And many more will come. But now, (coughs) excuse me, without further ado, let's get into the special edition of the anniversary episode. So we'll start with this concept of the West and why America should not be a part of it. Because if we're going to lay out America as a civilization, we have to address the civilization that we technically already belong to, the West. People often speak of the West, this term, this phrase, interchangeable with the collective West, which has been popularized ever since the Ukraine war. And it refers to Europe, the Anglosphere, you know, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., and the United States. Most of the people who use this term tend to exclude Russia from it in spite of Russia's very Western foundations and very Western institutions, as well as its Western military. And its history, its mutual history with the West And it wasn't that long ago that they were regarded as a part of Western civilization. Like it was right. It was before the Russian revolution that they were regarded as part of the West. So let's not pretend here. Excuse me. So that's what's going on here. Uh, And while the usage of the term the West stems from what I believe to be an incorrect yet unchallenged definition of what Western civilization is, wherein the West is referred to as a singular civilization, rather than as a a civilizational distinction, like the East or the Middle East. Thus, the definition for the West is structurally incapable of recognizing and acknowledging the multitude of civilizations within it. And I went over this in the last anniversary episode. There are a multitude of Western civilizations, English, French, Greek, Roman, Mediterranean, Germanic, Nordic, Slavic, and so on. But the topic I seek to discuss today is the West in relation to America's national identity. Because ever since the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian War, ever since the beginning, we've seen this attempt, we've seen this growing attempt to, well, in addition to the growth of the usage of the term the West, uh, primarily through the implication that we're all in this together, America, Europe, Ukraine, the West is all in this together. We all stand together for Western interests. As the war developed and we got further and further involved in the emotions regarding Russia and China ran high, and talk of civilization states were injected in the conversation, I have witnessed this solidarity devolve into an attempt to redefine America's national identity around the West. An event which I've come to view as 
interventionists trying to use the emerging civilizational dynamics of this new age to foster a new justification for perpetual war and perpetual intervention, a shiny new reason for their existence. And this trend has manifested itself in the de facto political union between the US and the West. One cannot even speak of the US in isolation these days without reference to the West a moment later. Well, even domestic issues in the United States uh, can't be discussed without inserting other Western nations into the conversation. And which, you know, for comparison, which is to say that we do not look for a problem and try to find a solution. <clears throat> Rather, we find a problem merely to take solace and comfort in the fact that it is also a problem in insert Western country here with equal dismay if, God forbid, the United States had different problems than that of other Western countries. Oh, you see this problem? This isn't a problem in France. Oh, this isn't a problem in the developed world. This isn't a problem in Europe. You know, that type of uh, outlook on things. With this trend, with this trend of trying to manufacture a new American identity centered around the West and our obligation to it, it is an obtuse and arbitrary discernation. One which, in my view, ignores fundamental realities about the United States, namely its physical location. And thus, it only serves to be yet another distraction keeping Americans from focusing their attention on their own country and it's a, a divergence. It, it is a divergence from solving America's problems. Also that we may pursue the, the imposition of global governance at the expense of Americans. It's just the latest attempt in a very long series of attempts to Europeanize our great nation. And so, in my view, it is our patriotic duty to reject the subsumation and subjugation of the United States within and by the West. Certain truths in this world are simply self-evident. And every true American, when faced with this attempted erasure of our identity, should undoubtedly say to themselves, I am not a Westerner, I am American. The West does not live here. The West does not vote here. The West will never understand what it's like to live an ocean away from the world's problems, and they never will, because they never can. The West does not understand limited governance, as they themselves were forged from centuries of monarchy, nobility, aristocracy, familial blood feuds, entrenched social and class divisions, and militarism. The West will never understand the Second Amendment the right to defend oneself, or why it is important, which is a great irony given how prone to war they've tended to be in the past. The West may have given us the enlightenment and scientific rationalism along with the scientific and industrial revolutions. But let it not be forgotten that it was also the West who gave us socialism, 
which itself gave birth to that calamitous trifecta, communism, fascism, and national socialism. And you could probably add to that uh, the current climate crisis agenda, the anti-humanist agenda. Comes from the West. You can add to that eugenics. It was all the rage back in the ninth in the early 20th century and unfortunately it found roots here as well eugenics it would lose popularity after the the nazis took it to its logical conclusions but let's not forget where these disastrous ideas came from globalism the destruction of national identities to be subsumed within global governance the new world order All these terms, all these ideas of forcing and imposing one's worldview on others, even when it costs human life. These came from the West. The enlightened and intelligent West. So it goes without saying, when looking at the pros as well as the cons of the West, that America, just as our founding fathers intended, needn't walk in line with the West. We can take the best that they have to offer, but we do not need to associate and tie ourselves with them forever. Instead, we must walk our own path, just as the Russians have done. America must declare her independence again. Independence from the West, independence from our many, many foreign commitments and independence from the many feuds that we we have with other countries for no reason other than to have them and to justify the existence of a permanent war complex. Declare our independence from globalism and all the anti-humanist and satanic agendas that have come with it declare our independence from our dependence on foreign nations. We must leave behind these artificial grudges and attachments, leave behind the nations and peoples of the West and get back to the work of building not just an American nation, an American culture, an American identity, but building the American civilization. That's what we must do. And there are a number of things that I've, I feel must come attached with that. I talked about the anti-humanist agenda, the blatant attempt at depopulation. So I will talk of population growth and why it matters. It's growth of population for the past few decades has for whatever reason and i say for whatever reason as though it wasn't self-evident the anti-humanists have been in charge but the growth of population has been for the past few decades been painted in a negative light due to this ceaseless pressure from climate crisis doomsayers and people who believe that growing populations uh, have put the environment at risk due to the pollution that comes with supporting additional people. 
pollution from the usage of hydrocarbons generating the electricity that these people use, pollution from the production and consumption of consumer goods like clothing, phones, silverware, washing machines, refrigerators, automobiles, etc. Etc. Pollution from the production of materials and chopping and the chopping down of trees, which are used in building housing units for additional people, clearing of forests for additional farmland to feed people. Their hostility towards all that supports and perpetuates human life is what makes them anti-humanists. And it is why I've labeled the climate crisis agenda as an anti-humanist agenda. And given the inherent evil in such positions, I have, in my pursuit to define a uniquely American civilization, have begun to take up the opposing view that, along with my uh, perhaps selfish view that I myself don't want to be depopulated, and I'm sure you share my view in that. So I've taken up the opposing view. And I've adapted it to my outline of what I believe America should be doing, rather than just complaining about what America is doing and the ideas that we are going along with. I have come to the belief that America should strive to have more people, rather than allow itself to be depopulated in accordance with the wishes of these anti-humanist climate doomsayers. But what is my vision? My vision is simple. America, one billion. Becoming not just the melting pot, but the world cauldron. America, in my view, should strive to achieve a population of one billion people by the end of the century. And we're talking about the 21st century here. Taking into consideration that our current population is around 330 million, such a rather massive increase over a relatively short period of time might seem a ludicrous, lofty, and even unnecessary goal. But here's why I believe the opposite to be true. Discounting the fact that our population in 2000 was quadruple what it was in 1900. We had 74 million people in 1900, and we had over 300 million in 2000 or that our population in 1900 was itself 14 times what it was in 1800. 74 million in 1900, barely over 5 million in 1800. Throughout history, it's easy to see that the American population has been on this explosive upwards turn. Explosive, absolutely exponential. And it's also easy to see through history the influence of populations on the ability of a state to control a specific expanse of land. China and India have been invaded many times in their long histories, yet it is hard to find a moment in time where one cannot find either India or China on a map as an independent functioning state. Their invaders had they all had core populations far smaller than that of the people that they were conquering just looking at China and India alone. Which gave the invaders, which, which gave, well, my mistake, it gave the Chinese and the Indians an immediate 
and apparent demographic advantage over their foreign invaders and occupiers. The result of this ended up with the reality that over time, the invaders either assimilated into the cultures of the invaded rather, rather than the other way around, or it enabled a reverse conquest where the, <laughs> the Indians and the Chinese overtook their occupiers from within and either left the empires that had once conquered them or turned those, what was left of those empires into vassal states. A complete reversal of the power dynamic. How did it happen? It was population. Population played a role. Having superior numbers of people who knew who they were and knew what their culture was, who knew what it meant to be Indian, who knew what it meant to be Chinese. Once you have an identity like that, etched into the soul of a people who themselves become etched into the history of a land, you cannot erase that especially when they have sufficient numbers and the numbers are key if there were only two or three million chinese two or three million indians well the land could have been resettled and repopulated by many different peoples but because there were so many it was hard to displace india and china and so those who came in had to convert to their cultures rather than indians and chinese converting the other way around and we can look to the fall of many other empires to see this dynamic as well. The British, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, and French empires all took over vast expanses of land, but as time went on, their ability to hold on to these gains was undermined by the populations they had conquered no longer consenting to their rule. These empires held themselves together using commerce and economic opportunities as the glue to incentivize their conquered peoples to remain under their rule. But when the incentives were no longer enough, it all fell apart, even when military force was applied. Population magnified by number and distance it is a very powerful force that even military even the application of military force cannot always suppress. After all, Britain had a quarter of the world's population, the British Empire, I should say, a quarter of the world's population. But Britain itself, at that same moment in time in 1914, when that statistic was taken, Britain itself had 40-something million people. 40 million, you have a quarter of the world's population, the world's population is quickly coming up onto 2 billion, well, 40 million, excuse my math, 40 million isn't exactly a quarter of the world population. That means you were ruling over hundreds of millions of people more than your core population. Is it any surprise that the British Empire no longer lives today or any of the other European empires, except for a handful of islands that they didn't have much issue controlling? We can also look to our own history for examples of that dynamic populations in effect. After all, there would be no America if it weren't for the American Revolution. But how successful would our revolution have been had Washington and the Continental Congress not had, had nearly three million people to draw upon for various purposes, not just 
fighting. I mean, not least of which being the recruitment of fighting age men for the Continental Army. How successful would America have been in settling the West if our population was closer to that of the Native American tribes? Look at the history of how Texas came to be. It used to be a territory of Mexico. But when Americans settling there eventually outnumbered the Mexican, the local Mexican population in Texas, pressure for Texas to leave Mexico and join the United States began to build. Texan independence would not have happened had Americans not outnumbered Mexicans in the territory. California would not have declared its independence from Mexico during the Mexican-American War if it too were not a territory with a predominantly American population. Demographics are an integral piece of the greater American story, up to and including our eventual supporting of uh, our eventual supplanting of the British Empire as the largest economy and manufacturing power in the world by 1900. Would we have been able to do that? Would we have been able to do that with a population that was still 5 million people? No. The number we were at in 1800 was 5 million. The number we were at in 1900 was 74 million. Our massive and rapid increase in population enabled us to break away from Britain and wrest control over the North American continent, beating out many of the Native American tribes who had tried and failed to do so themselves for thousands of years, beating out Canada, beating out Mexico, and becoming the undisputed dominant power of our continent, taking up all the best land. And then on to add to that, we had a massive population advantage. Mexico only recently has only recently gained a, a population similar in size to ours, over 100 million people. Canada still lags behind with a tenth of our population today. And these differences were much worse in the past, in the early 1900s. This is a part of our story. We are, our, our history is based in that of population growth. And it is the growth of the American population, which has for so long aided our rise to such prominence over a a relatively short period of time. And we can also look further to the past to see the influence of populations on people and empires. We can look to the Roman and Byzantine empires to see the influence of population dynamics being played out there with immigrant population, people who did not previously live on the land that they ended up inhabiting. These peoples, by migrating or properly in immigrating to these empires, ultimately ended up working against the empires with which they moved to. As due to their distinct ethnic and racial makeups, they, instead of forming little Roman states separate from Rome, but nearly identical to it, formed separate kingdoms and political identities when Rome finally broke apart. New kingdoms, based on their separate ethnic identities, which themselves may have been molded by region and by their influence of Rome itself, but never quite Roman. And therein lies the inherent danger of immigration-based population growth. When a large enough people, when a large enough number of people move into a new land within a short space of time, 
they do not assimilate into the culture of the countries that they move to. Rather, they double down on their own identities, which prevents and impairs the process of assimilation. The importation of large numbers of people only benefits the society that can fully integrate and assimilate them. Thus, any society that chooses to bring these immigrants, to bring them in, must either do so slowly, disperse immigrant populations throughout their territories, or follow up their immigration waves with harsh immigration restrictions to allow for a proper digestion, so to speak, of the added population. It is preferable that any two of the three is applied in an immigration policy, as again, the goal is the assimilation of different peoples. Societies who are based more heavily in race or are centered around a particular ethnic group will inevitably have a far greater difficulty in integrating foreign populations into their own. Integrating the foreign born would threaten the power of the host country's dominant ethnic group. This is why settler societies and the empires that take on multi-ethnic character early on in their history are better at assimilating foreigners into their societies. America in this regard is more suited to such a task than even Rome was, but we cannot depend solely on immigration to reach the 1 billion mark. We must grow it from within. In order to achieve this, in order to achieve this a number of preconditions will have to be met. Uh, I've simplified it to these things. Cheap food, cheap energy, cheap housing, manufacturing, and a strong dollar. Cheap food is a precondition which is largely already met. The vastness of the American agricultural sector means that the only way for America not to have cheap food is if we had a drought or a famine. Although inflation and transportation costs associated with high gas prices have driven food prices higher, cheap energy would solve this issue. And in that regard, we don't have to look far for that source of power. As America sits upon a veritable gold mine of coal, oil, natural gas, and we have a neighbor who has who was the fourth largest producer of uranium in the world, that neighbor is Canada. Canada being the future U.S. territory. With the proper extraction of our own energy resources, we can drive we can drive down the prices of energy across all sectors our oil resources in particular will serve the dual purpose of providing cheap energy as well as lowering the cost of transportation by way of lower fuel costs as if it takes less money to fill up the tank then those giant semi trucks will cost less moving goods across vast distances trains and planes they all run on fuel cars they all run on fuel the box trucks they all run on fuel so if fuel is cheap transportation is cheap and if transportation is cheap then the goods being transported can themselves be cheaper yes yes everything cheaper lower gas prices combined with lower energy bills, as we also have natural gas. The production of natural gas being used for power almost exclusively and heating, lower gas prices combined with lower energy bills, lower heating bills, and abundant food will give would-be mothers and fathers the bare essentials for affording a family. And affordability is the key. And 
the key that I will focus on for these issues, which we can solve the issue of, of affordability. Because next then is a house. The next essential for a family is a house. How do we get a house? Well, we're going to want more housing. As the simple calculus of supply and demand will mean that more housing we have available, the cheaper the housing will become. Deregulation of home building, primarily in ways that reduce approval times for permits and new constructions, along with any necessary adjustments to zoning laws, will enable a building spree of new residential housing across the country, thus making homes affordable for the people. We will also have the added, uh, this will also have the added effect of allowing us to support an enlarged population as the greater abundance of housing will also mean a greater housing capacity, which is going to be a necessity for reaching the 1 billion mark. Uh, we want that in our country. We want 1 billion people. But cheap food, energy, and housing means nothing if one is not able to pay the bills. And thus, we move on to manufacturing. Because you have to pay the bills. That means you need a job. So we want an abundance of quality employment opportunities. Because you need the job to pay the bills and put the food on the table. So an abundance of quality employment opportunities is a must-have if we are to reach a billion people. Now, why is that a must-have? Why is it that way? Well, unemployed people don't tend to have kids. People who are well-off do. The stable employment opportunities that comes from the production of a physical good is the highest form of mass employment available to us as a species. The production of those goods, which themselves can be used as the basis to make yet more physical goods, is a positive feedback loop conducive to the wide-scale benefit of society. From nurturing the professions with a wide variety of uses like engineering, architecture, and the sciences, to the cost reductions that come with the manufacturing of a product, of a good, particularly as production methods gradually become more efficient. To the insulation of the national economy from external and even many internal disruptions, manufacturing is a critical component of nurturing a large and gainfully employed workforce who themselves will then be able to afford all the physical and spiritual necessities of life, a home, a reliable mode of transportation, a well-stocked pantry, and a family to call their own. And lastly, to cement the five necessary realities, uh, we will need to cement the necessary reality of affordability of all things. We will need the rebasing of our currency. This will be achieved either through the abolition of or the restructuring of the Fed, the Federal Reserve. Additionally, we must repeg the dollar to gold. The gold standard would limit the currency to only what we could back up with physical gold in our treasury. 
we might even have reason to impose a constitutional amendment capping the supply of money at current levels. Either way, we would impose upper limits on money printing and on the supply of currency. And thus, we'd make deflation the default status of our currency. A dollar that holds its value and even grows stronger year on year is a proper and definitive solution to the inflation issue. If the economy grows and the supply of currency stays the same, well, the only logical result of that can be deflation. The only, that's the only way. Deflation in relative terms. Deflation itself is the reduction of the money supply as inflation is the increase in the money supply. These are reflected through prices. So if increasing the money supply is reflected with higher prices than decreasing the money supply, either through actually destroying dollars or in this case, in relative terms, where you get a stronger and stronger dollar because of the supply stays the same, but the demand increases, then the value of the supply goes up. The constant growth of the dollar's value will gradually make everyday goods cost less and less over time. And this happens because if you keep the supply of the currency the same, while the economy grows, as the economy grows, the demand for dollars increase, but the supply stays the same. You get deflation in relative terms, which means you get the appreciation of your currency's value. Everyday goods will cost less and less over time, rather than costing more and more and more over time, leading to people at the bottom asking and begging for raises that they ultimately don't need. A, a, a living wage, a minimum wage, they say. 10, 15, $25 an hour. Well, why does your wage not cut it anymore? Why is it that you need employment where the pay goes up fast enough to compete with inflation? Why should your pay have to compete with an arbitrary and artificial devaluation of your currency? Why, why is it that when you look for a bank account, you need to find a savings account that will have 3% or higher interest rate so that you can beat inflation? You earned the money already. Why do you then need to put it into some investment account just to hold its value? What does in, What is inflation and why do you need it? Why is it a necessity? Why is it a feature of the economy instead of a bug? These are the root causes of many of our social woes. Inflation. People cannot afford to live, not because they aren't paid enough. Pay has been stagnant since the 60s, but people were well off in the 60s. So what happened? It was inflation. The dollar lost 2 to 3% of its value year after year after year after year. However, with deflation, the dollar gains value year after year after year and we get what in effect amounts to compound interest on the value of our currency on the buying power of our currency life gets easier year on year life becomes more affordable year on year that is what we want that's what we need for our society and that's what we should strive for
We want lower prices through increased buying power, reducing consumer costs and leaving a greater proportion of Americans' income open for saving money, getting ahead. Now you can buy the house. Now you can buy the car. Now you can buy the diapers and the milk and the clothes for your children. Now you can afford the good life on a single income over a hard, honest day's work. That is what we should strive for. Not higher and higher pay that never addresses the root cause of why you need the higher pay, the devaluation of your currency. The abolition of inflation is a must-have for American society, let alone the American civilization. And by getting ahead, we build wealth again, not just within the top one, two or three percent, but across the board for everyone who is willing to work and do an honest day's work. Everyone who works can live. Everyone who works can live good. And that is the society that the people deserve. A monetary environment such as this, the, in such a monetary environment, the money you save will grow in value. You do not need an investment account. Your money grows in value as you save it, meaning it will buy more when you decide to use it. Thus, the combination of pro-energy, pro-construction, pro-housing, pro-family, pro-economy, pro-deflation, and pro-manufacturing, all this is necessary for giving American families the chance to start. This, in combination with major student debt reform, which itself could be solved very easily through a simple four-step process. The end to the student debt program itself, the, the end of student loans, no more student loans, step one. Step two, as most of the loans are issued by the government, the government has the jurisdiction to freeze interest payments on those loans, and the government shouldn't be charging interest of the American citizenry anyway. An end to the loans, an end to the interest, now the problem cannot get bigger. A waiver for those who have paid more in interest than they owed in principle, and now millions of Americans living in debt are suddenly set free. And the fourth and final step would be to write a check to Americans who paid more in interest than they owed in principle, and you write a check for the difference. And just like that, this problem, this manufactured modern age indentured servitude comes to an end and colleges who have gotten rich rich and wealthy off of the disconnection of the price incentives the disconnection from having to charge what people can afford to being able to charge what people are willing to go into debt for 
that system will be broken and colleges will have no choice but to return to prices and price points for their tuitions that regular people can afford, bringing the cost of college down across the board and perhaps ending up with a more quality education as the money will be spent more wisely. No more gender programs and no more programs that cannot get you a job. So the quality of education will increase when the glut of money is taken away and it must be earned again from people. These are the problems that we can solve with simple and effective policy, which will enable young Americans to start a family. It will enable older Americans to expand their family. As everyone can afford a house, everyone can afford their car, everyone can afford their food, everyone can afford their bills, and everyone can afford their family. And these will be the necessities for building a population of a billion people. After all, we've gone over why we can't import a billion people. We can't import 700 million people. And that'd be an insane number to try to go for. Where would you get them from? There are very few places that you could grab them from. As not everyone truly wants to leave their own country. Millions might, but hundreds of millions is a stretch. Thus, most of our population growth must come from within, and these are the policies necessary to make that possible. Cheap energy, cheap food, cheap transportation, cheap housing, manufacturing, and a strong dollar. And all this is to be considered within the context of a free market economy, as the free market economy is the best system for the United States and for the well-being of the individual. We want small government, but we want effective government. We want equal opportunity, but we want the freedom of enterprise, the freedom to succeed or fail on one's own merit. And that is why we want the free market. Because <clears throat> a market is ultimately just the culmination of people's decisions. So as the market adjusts to the decisions of the people, it will reach what ultimately amounts to a consensus of the people. And the less government power there is, the less private business, the less corporations, less the anti-humanists will be able to use the mechanisms of our government to seize control over our economy. As it is infamous that Washington's halls are filled with lobbyists, but if Washington did not have the power or the authority rather to give favorability to this or that business or interest, those lobbyists would find better things to do with their time. <clears throat> It should also be said that there are clearly defined benefits to having such a large population, not just an ambition that I seek. There are benefits to this. Having a population of 1 billion Americans would mean having a built-in protection against even the prospect of a permanent occupation or even of an ethnic replacement, as it is, it is rumored, it is being conspired 
to replace the American population with the many immigrants that we bring into the southern border. A, a population of a billion people would throw such ideas out the window before they even got started. After all, how many troops would you need to pacify a countryside of armed people numbering in the hundreds of millions? If we have a population of a billion people, and we believe in the Second Amendment, well, it would take an act of God to wipe a country like that off the face of the earth. Either that, or a very large number of nuclear missiles. But if that is the stakes for fighting a war with America on American soil, then those are exactly the type of stakes that we want. Because no one would accept those stakes. No one would bother to try which would be the ultimate form of national security. It would also be nigh impossible to replace us with some other group of ethnicities as importing just a fraction of the number required would mean the depopulation of whole countries worth of people. Plus, if there's already a billion people living here, then no one in particular is gonna be very eager to import more through immigration. Open borders doesn't just die as a policy idea. It also becomes so impractical that even the most casual of, of observers would immediately see the glaring problems associated with it. And I do mean literally. They would see the problems, which would be the massive American population already living there. They would feel quite overcrowded. Another benefit to having an enlarged American population would be this. It would render the existence, uh, excuse me, the benefit to having an enlarged American population would be the existence of a truly massive domestic market for our own products, goods and services, which would render other markets nearly redundant. I mean, it is a known issue today that we struggle to keep business interests in line with American values when the Chinese market is growing and they have a billion people. Having a greatly enlarged population of a billion people would insulate us, it would insulate us from the cultural insecurities that come from businesses pursuing opportunities in other markets that may not share our values and rights. Now, some people think that it's more effective to fight a war with such countries, but I believe the solution will also come from within. Because if we have a billion people, other markets seem tiny by comparison, especially when you consider the vastness of the American market as it is now, when we only have 300 million people. We wouldn't have to deal with, again, the cultural insecurities that come from businesses Pursuing opportunities in markets that do not share our value that or for rights, freedoms, or the culture in the way we do things. We can see the adverse effects of this dynamic where China, having a larger population than us, attracts U.S. businesses like sports and entertainment media. But due to them being a larger market, courtesy of their larger population, our businesses are financially incentivized towards catering to Chinese cultural and political sensibilities rather than those of America. 
If America, however, were to have 1 billion people or more, the prospect of losing access to the American market would not be something so easily bet on given access to another market like that of China or India. If our businesses' primary customer base lies in America, then the businesses themselves will have to conform to our cultural and political sensibilities, those of Americans, rather than those of foreign states. A population of 1 billion people will virtually guarantee plentiful economic opportunities for American citizens. America's people, America having a large population, would also allow for greater competition of the United States in industries and markets around the world. The simple calculus being that if we have more people to do things, then we can do more than those who have fewer people. Even when AI, automation, and robotics are taken into account, that just means that every worker can now be more productive, which frees up labor for other parts of an economy, meaning that we can, through new technology, perform all the same functions, but with perhaps half the people working, then that means the other half can be put towards advancing and developing new industries, new businesses, building new infrastructure and creating new opportunities that didn't exist before. Revolutions in productivity may benefit smaller countries in the short term as it increases their productivity and thus their ability to compete with countries who have larger populations. But as we can observe with China and increasingly India, the, it, the disproportionate benefit largely comes to the larger and more populous countries in the long term. And if we are one of those countries, those larger and more populous countries, then we will always remain massively competitive in international trade, but not just trade, international industry and commerce. It will guarantee America's spot at the top not necessarily always number one, but never number 18, so to speak. And that is a security, a national security in and of itself. This, this cementing of our position among the top, among the great civilizations of China and India would have the effect of permanently removing the fear factor we have regarding countries with large militaries or populations larger than ours anytime they have ideas and governance systems that we that are different than ours. Our insecurity about our place in the world, the role that we play in it, and how we relate to other countries would be replaced with a great confidence, a confidence derived from the certainty of our future as a nation of, by, and for our people too big for others to sway in any which way that we do not choose to be swaying. Too big to be obsessing over the issues of other nations as though they were our own. If we were a country whose position at the top was all but guaranteed by sheer mass of population, the idea that someone else's war was a matter of national importance for us would become even more laughable than it is now. Thus, so too would interventionist tendencies begin to fade from our political thought. The expansion of our population would also serve as an accelerant 
for the creation of a uniquely American civilization. As if your population expands that greatly from within, you're bound to answer the question eventually, who are you? And that question will be a definitive, we are American. Thus, it is my firm belief that population growth is the key to the creation of a uniquely American civilization. <clears throat> but an American civilization needs space to grow its legs. The American nation is very large, but the American civilizational sphere must be larger, which is why we must annex Canada and Greenland. In line with my belief that the creation of an American civilization in no small part through population growth, I believe this expansion of population should coincide with a complementary expansion of territory. I should preference that this expansion would not be southward as the identities, culture, and languages of the local populations in Latin America would be too difficult to fully submerge even within a greatly expanded American core population. Even with the likelihood that our core population being more Hispanic, we'd simply set ourselves up for constant struggles against one nationalist uprising after another, draining the resources and energy of what should be an emerging titan. Our aim, in no uncertain terms, should be the total annexation and assimilation of Canada, Greenland, and Bermuda with the possible purchase of Baja California from Mexico, although that one is optional. We should subsume them into the greater United States to form the greater, not the greater, to form the American civilizational sphere and unite it under a single governance. The Canadian provinces, as well as Greenland's administrative districts will be admitted as separate states within our expanded union. Our northward expansion should balance itself with a growing respect for reassurance, uh, a growing respect for and reassurance of the sovereignty of our Southern neighbors. But why do we want Canada and Greenland? Well, the American civilizational sphere, especially that of a billion people, well, is gonna need room to live. It's going to need room to live, and the expansion of American power will at some point outgrow the shell that is the United States right now. And when you add to that the fact that Canada and Greenland are still colonies of European states on our northern border, it leaves open the possibility to, in a sense, decolonize Canada and Greenland by either force or economic coercion. Now, why do I refer to them as colonies? Well, because Greenland literally is one. And Canada, who is their head of state? It is the British Crown. If Canada's head of state is the British Crown, not their prime minister, then that means Canada itself is still a colony. Now, perhaps we can coerce the Canadians to declare their independence from the British Crown, as we have done. But if that should prove insufficient, then the Monroe Doctrine must come into full effect. We cannot allow ourselves and our continent to be the only continent left 
yet to be decolonized in a world where the Europeans have been removed from Africa, removed from South America, removed from Asia, and by and large, removed from the Middle East. That would be a betrayal of our own national interests. It is a betrayal that many today cannot see because of our emotional and political investments in the connection to the West. And while America, even as a civilization, will always be Western, as Western is a distinction rather than a civilization, we cannot disregard our national interests. A foreign entity, the very entity we declared our independence from, still holds the sovereignty over a country the size of the United States and that has our longest border. We cannot allow such a state of affairs to continue. Canada must be decolonized, either through coercion, through getting them to declare their independence, or through the annexation of Canada. Greenland, there was an attempt to purchase Greenland under the Trump administration. Those attempts did not follow through, but we should reopen attempts to purchase Greenland again. Now, beyond the justifications for the annexations of Canada and Greenland, there are the benefits of the annexations of Canada and Greenland, which would be the massive expansions of American territory, the removal of a whole border, leaving us with the only land border we would have post-annexation of Canada would be our border with Mexico. The only land border we would have would be with the country that we are already building a wall between us. So with the removal of our longest land border and the subsum and the doubling of size of our country, more than doubling, counting Greenland, we would have acquired a territory equal in size to the United States in just Canada alone with populations collectively less than a tenth of that of the United States. Less than a tenth of our current population, let alone our soon-to-be-rapidly-expanding population, well, our would-be-rapidly-expanding population. As America's population expands, there is also the issue of population decline within the West to account for. The West, and along with much of the developed world, has a demographic issue, where people have not been having kids, and perhaps this is the work of the anti-humanists, and it's come to fruition. This century, all of Europe will see declining populations. Canada will see declining populations. Greenland will see declining populations. Australia, New Zealand, even Russia will see declining populations. China too will see declining populations. South Korea, Japan. It is a plight that has stricken the entirety of the developed world. And while China has the bulk to overcome this from the ground up, as they, even in the worst case scenario, will still have hundreds of millions of people 
from which to draw upon for a mass birthing campaign. And the Russians will also have that, but to a lesser extent, the nations of Europe, the nations of the West, cannot draw upon similar manpower reserves. And thus their declines will be much harder to reverse. And the issue of Canadian demographic decline will be one that impacts us much closer to home. The Canadian state will struggle greatly to support itself under a rapidly aging population that gets older and older and thus less and less productive and therein will lie and therein by itself will lie an opportunity for the acquisition of Canada as we through our growing and more dynamic society will be able to support them in their old age the moving the movement of americans into canadian land will help to revitalize the former canadian economy and the linkage of canada to the, the broader us economy would in and of itself bring massive benefits to both Canada and the United States. The declining population of Canada will also increase the disparities between a growing American population and a shrinking Canadian one, which would turn Canadians who themselves would gradually disperse throughout the United States as well upon becoming a singular country. They would become yet another minority group within America and we, in exchange for that minority group, would gain another doubling of our land in a, sim a similar pattern through earlier periods in our history. With the acquisitions of Canada, we would lose all land borders except for one. We would lose our longest land border, and we would be removed of perhaps one of the primary potential dangers to the United States, the base of operations, the primary base of operations, used by the British Crown for influence operations run against the United States, as was done during World War I and II when they ran influence operations to get America involved in their war. With the annexation of Greenland, however, with the annexation of Greenland, all approaches to North America from the North would be under American control. And with the annexation of Greenland and Canada, that would mean that the entire northern coastline of North America would belong to America, meaning that a deal reached in, in the Arctic would become a bilateral deal between America and Russia, which would simplify the logistics of such cooperation, particularly in the realm of energy resources and the transportation of ships through the Northwestern Passage, the passage that runs along Canada's northern coastline with the assistance of an icebreaker ship. We would control that potential trade route, as well as the Panama Canal at some later point in time, although that one would perhaps require another purchase of the territory. But the annexations of Canada and Greenland, upon doubling, more than doubling the US physical territory would give plenty of land plenty of resources, both energy, mineral, etc., natural and farming, agricultural land, for America to sustain itself, even with its massively enlarged population, comfortably, very, very comfortably. And we would never want or need for anything from that point onwards. 
We would have more energy resources than we would ever know what to do with. We would always be a massive exporter. We would always be self-sufficient in food. We would always be self-sufficient in our domestic industries. And we would have a massive market and a massive land mass from which resources previously unavailable to the Canadians due to the relatively small population and relative inability to afford to develop resources in the far north, that limitation would be thrown out the window once Canada was linked up to United States. And the vastness of the great white north would be open for business. And a similar story would play itself out in Greenland. The control of the strategic avenues to America from the north would be under our control, which would mean that America's security would all but be secured. The terrain between us and Mexico is highly defensible, if even if the border is quite long. But that would be our only border. Everything else would be an approach from the sea. We would become a fortress, a continent-sized fortress. And thus, any speculation of this or that country being necessary to American national security interests would again become highly laughable. An America so large and so populous would have no need to go beyond its neighborhood. And perhaps, being a satisfied power as we would be at that point, we could begin the process of rebuilding relations with our neighbors in a healthy and constructive way. Again, I mentioned earlier that our annexation of the North should come with a growing appreciation and respect for uh, and the assurance of the sovereignty of our Southern neighbors. That will require a good neighbor policy such that they do not feel threatened by the growth of America, as we will have no need to annex any of them, and we will have to restrain ourselves from annexing all of them, lest we encounter imperial overreach just as we reach sustainability, permanence in North America. A massive state equal in size to the Soviet Union itself with only a single border and no even potential challengers to our strength and to our security. America, upon the annexations of Canada and Greenland, would be a satisfied power. That is why we have to do it. With the, we would give our people all the room in the world to move into vast, fertile plains. We would give all the territory and all the resources necessary for a permanent self-sustaining of the U.S. civilization. And it would remove just about all security threats to the United States. It is the final piece of building the American civilizational sphere. And with that sphere built, 
with the, the necessary reality of affordability met and with no threats to our security, with a massively expanded population, America, in my view, would quickly ascend to a civilization, a very young civilization, but we would become one. We would become a, we would become one of the many Western civilizations, a very distinct and very different civilization. We would become the American civilization, separate from Europe, separate from the Anglosphere, separate from French, German, Nordic, and Russian. We would be American. All that we would need to be. All that we would ever want to be. And the confidence and security of being a state so large, so powerful, and so populous would, in my view, turn America into a rather pacifist state, as we should be. And we would evolve from being the great trading nation to being the great trading civilization. The la truly the last best hope of freedom on this earth. And we would have secured that position and that freedom for untold generations to come as you could never truly erase a population of a billion people from the earth. And thus Lincoln's wish that this nation of by and for our people would never perish from the earth would be met. And generations would be able to rejoice in that fact. And I believe in time, even the Canadians and the Greenlands, oh, well, the Greenlanders would be able to rejoice in that. That is my vision. It's a bold one. You won't, you won't look, you won't get this anywhere else, folks. <laughs> but that is my vision. America, not as the civilization state for the West, but America as its own distinct, uniquely American civilization. But that, my lovely, lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. It took me a minute, but I got through it all. I've laid out my vision. America as a civilization. And it, it's pretty simple. It's nothing grandiose. It's nothing, nothing too profound. I mean, the profound was already in our Declaration of Independence. I mean, our Constitution, the foundations are there. It's just a matter of securing the necessities for creating a distinct America. You have the land, you have the population, you have affordability, the necessity of affordability. That's, you know, I can't stress enough the necessity of it. And the end of this indentured servitude that is being in debt to our government. If we can achieve these things, America will in time transcend the nationhood status and become a civilization, an American civilization. The city on a hill that all would aspire to be like. The city on a hill that would never know war, that would never know hunger, that would never want for anything, and thus would never go 
overseas in search of dragons to slay. A secure state, confident in its future and confident in its abilities. And a people confident in their future and confident in their livelihoods. And is it utopian? Maybe. I don't think so. I think it's rather real. Now, maybe maybe you aren't sold on the billion people. But I tell you, if China and India can get to a billion people, why can't we? Simple question. If we had a billion people, we could never be erased from this earth. And we would become immortal in the same vein as India, China, and Persia, Egypt, an immortal American civilization. Now that's a world that I would like to see. But that is all I've got for you today. Three years, baby, the third anniversary. I do hope you've enjoyed today's special broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Ah, the world is changing. I've laid out my vision for how I wish for America to change as well. But no matter how the world changes, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.